0: Hello podcast listeners. This podcast contains adult language. We don't bleep the mild stuff, but there is one word that we have bleeped in an alternative edition published on our website. If you want the bleeped version, go to knoxlive.org, K-N-O-X-L-I-B, and search for the Sam Venable episode of our podcast. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Claire Sorrell, and I'm here representing the Friends of the Knox County Public Library. Knox County Public Library, in partnership with the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Tennessee and Friends of the Knox County Public Library, announces a book sandwiched in miniseries about diversity. Beginning the series will be Sam Venable, columnist of the Knoxville News Sentinel, discussing hillbilly elegy, a memoir of family and culture in crisis by J.D. Vance. Sam Venable is a native of Knoxville and a graduate of the University of Tennessee. As you all probably well know, he's won more than three dozen national and regional writing awards, including the National Feature Writing Award from the Society of Professional Journalists for his 2014 series, Fragments of Hate. This series was also nominated for the Pulitzer Prize. Sam is the author of 12 books. It is my great pleasure and honor to welcome
1: Sam Venable. Thank thanks, you, Sam. thanks, Larry. I'll tell you right now, there's not much going on in Knoxville, Tennessee <laughs> at noon on Wednesday. <laughs> you really ought to have better things to do. Go, go home and read a book, for heaven's sakes. Let me ask you real quickly, how many have read this book already? Well, oh, good. It's been on the New York Times bestseller list since way back in the summer. I want to spend just a little time with some of my thoughts. Uh, you know, I was just jotting notes as I would read and then key back to something and go back in and look at it. I look at this book like I do any book, both as a writer and as a reader. And I really like the way this guy puts words together. He's a very good writer. The only nitpicking I would do with it, and it's pure nitpicking because I, I don't know how better he could do this. There were so many names coming in and out of this family dynamic. And he, they were certainly well introduced, but I had a hard time. I had, actually, I've read the book twice. You had to go and kind of connect dot A to dot B and that kind of stuff. Uh, I don't know how else you could do that. I mean, once you introduce somebody, they're introduced. And the other thing, I found that it was a little bit disconcerting when you would start reading and realize, whoops, wait a minute, we're back in the seventh grade now. He was in high school the last time I read. But again, knowing how he was weaving that story, I don't see how else you could do it. Uh, That is the fraction of 1% of critique that I would give. It was a very, very good book. Be advised, if you haven't read it, it's got a lot of cursing in it. Didn't bother me. (laughs) Sounds like the people I associate with, you see. (laughs) But uh, it it is interesting that in, in some respects, it was difficult for me to identify with what he's talking about. Even though I'm a native of this area and all that, my life has just been the antithesis of what J.D. Vance was talking about. I was raised in a very loving household. Both of my parents had master's degrees. Both had taught at UT. And it was a different experience, even though I grew up in rural South Knox County and went to elementary school, we had the best blend of socioeconomic people I have ever been with in my life, the, the eight years I was in grammar school. I didn't realize it at the time, but I realize it now. I mean, the kids in that school were children of doctors, of lawyers, of mill workers, of farmers. It was just this blend. And there was not really a class structure. I, I never felt that until like high school and all that. And so it was very difficult for me to to really plug into that. Uh, my brother-in-law uh, lives down in uh, Cleveland, teaches music at Lee University. He said he understood it, and I'm sure he would. He, he came from a pretty rough background, pretty rough home. He is the only one that in his family that ever went to college. Uh, his dad asked him one time, uh, the, Tony had this, you know, he was a traveling baritone, goodness gracious. He sung literally around the world and he was going to some performance and his dad said, son, how can you hold down a job when you're gone that much? You see, <laughs> and He never understood that you don't have to go to the mill and punch a clock all the time. I cannot identify with this. Some of you all may be able to. I thought even given the situation of his family, it was more particularly violent than I would have imagined. If you read that thing, holy Toledo! I know violence and abuse and that kind of stuff, but I never had an uncle who took an electric saw to a guy, you know, and I never had a grandmother who cursed like a sailor and carried a pistol around with her all the time, even though that was his... They were, his grandmother and grandfather were his protection, his mentors. In other ways, it is rather easy for me to identify just having lived the bulk of my life right here in East Tennessee. I, you know, you have these little epiphanies along uh, where you realize, boy, what a different world there is out there. You remember that uh, in the part that J.D. Vance writes about when he's in uh, Iraq, and he gave those erasers to that little kid, and the kid was just like he had given him the Hope Diamond, you know. And uh, it made him realize even as, as tough a situation as he grew up in, there's, there's a different world. And I, I've had those epiphanies along, I remember Oh, some years ago, I was grouse hunting up in Hancock County, two or three of us, and we got out of, out of you know a fancy truck, unloading bird dogs, shotguns, and everything. And in the course of hunting, we were just there was just this little, literally tar paper shack out there, and there, it was a cold day, and there were kids out there in short sleeve shirts just playing around and all that. And I mean this this wave of just guilt and everything. You know, I, I thought my bird dog probably gets as far as nutrition because I had her on you know strict veterinarian feed. She probably has a better diet than these kids. And I'm looking down. I'm carrying a shotgun that costs nearly a thousand dollars. And I think you know that just doesn't equate in there.
2: Uh, and
1: then when I mentioned off-color. I will be a little off-color in this next example, but I think it loses its flavor if you don't. Uh, I worked for 10 winters at a corporate duck hunting club in southwest Louisiana. And I've had people say, what? Trust me, corporate duck hunting, that's the entertainment down there. They, not golf and tennis. Uh, this was a small little place that one guy owned 11,000 acres. And I worked down there. I did their dog and pony shows and wrote a book for them and all that. But one of my dear friends down there, I knew he came from, uh, both parents were alcoholics. And I knew he had a rough time growing up. But he had, he had gotten out of that. He had gone, he had a master's degree in fisheries from uh, LSU. But I never got a glimpse, even though it's a rough and tumble place. And I'll just tell you, I mean, Cajuns are just like a lot of East Tennessee. It's very clannish, you know. But once you you break in, you're one of the family like that. But I was over at Tom's house one time. Or Actually, no, this was the time when he was back up here. He came up here shortly before his death, and he and I hunted for a few days. And uh, we were sitting down one night, and he said this. I mean, he, he said it as earnestly, like he's really enlightening me. He said, V, he always called me V. Now, again, pardon me, but you have to understand, he says, don't ever get real pissed off at your grandkids and call them a motherfucker. And and he said it. He said it like Dr. Spock had it in the book. And I said, Tom, what the hell are you talking about? And he said, I said that the other day to one of his grandkids. And he said, my son said, Papa, don't say that. Don't call my kids that. He said, you called me that all the time growing up. And he said, it hurts. And Tom said, I never realized that. And I'm thinking, how disconnected could you be from reality <laughs> to think that's the norm? One or two other uh, examples a lot of my colleagues are former colleagues. About half the people I knew were dead now. This was Stan delosier one of the reporters that was on the New Sentinel staff with me. He was over in, I think, over near Wartburg, somewhere over in, in uh, Morgan County, Fentress County, and was at a little country store. And he said there was a kid, the way he described him, he kind of liked that kid that played the banjo in Deliverance, and he said this kid looked at him, he pointed to that two-lane road out there and said, you know where that road goes? And Stan said, no, where does it goes?" He says, goes to Detroit. And made sense then because just about everybody left down that road and they ended up working in Detroit. So you, you get a little sense growing up in this area if you're cognizant at all of what's out there. Actually, when I got into this book, when I first started it, in my mind, I was paralleling it with Night Comes to the Cumberlands by Harry Caldwell. Any of you read that? Oh Boy, what a, what a troubling book. I mean, what a tough thing. But actually, even though the parallels are, are quite, op, uh, quite the same, Night Comes to the Cumberlands is about how the people in this Cumberland Plateau area have just been continually screwed over by influences from up north. You know, back in the 1800s, first the timber barons came in and gave them virtually nothing for their timber and stripped everything. And then the coal barons came in and uh, ended up a lot of them sold their mineral rights without even realizing, and the next thing they know, they're getting mined underneath their house and that kind of stuff. And those that stuck around ended up working in the mines and, uh, you know, getting black lung and this type of stuff. And then the UMW failed them in, in the very end. So that was a case of the influences coming from the North. This is just the opposite. Uh, this is uh, one of those stories. Uh, and he, he, Vance keeps mentioning this. He did achieve the American dream. Uh, it's the old pull yourself up by the bootstraps type of story but it's in a way that I just found was just stunning. He faced more obstacles, known and unknown, and I think it's the unknown obstacles that he faced that he realized in retrospect that he really had all the odds stacked against him and anybody that grew up. Uh, A quick synopsis if you don't know the book, uh, his grandparents came from Jackson. Kentucky, it's in Breathitt County, which they, as he describes, was known as Bloody Breathitt. And they moved to Middletown, Ohio, like so many folks out of work. They moved up there, they settled, and they found that they were settled right with a lot of the people they knew in Kentucky. And they're working up there. Uh, in Middletown, apparently, the industry was ARMCO. I forgot what that acronym stands for. It's a steel mill. And I gather it was kind of like the Alcoa of, of this region. You went to work over there. If you got out of high school, yeah, you, you got a job because your dad had a job over there and he could get you home. One thing I found, and I may have misread this, but somebody can correct me, but it seemed to me that ARMCO did with the rest of the of the Rust Belt Industries, they went down. But then they were bought in in part by Kawasaki. And he said in there, they retooled. And I think that is the key right there. And As far as I know, now again, correct me, I I assume that Armco uh, Kawasaki deal is still on. Does anybody, did you get that? Do you think it's not on? Okay, the Akawasaki, I I missed that part up, but I thought at least they tried, they retooled. And I think this may be at the absolute heart of what's going on in manufacturing in the Rust Belt and all that. All I can do is just voice my opinion that If if these companies are going out of business, it's not so much anything to do with politics. It's because, you know, that type of operation does not exist anymore. There's no need for it with that labor intensive. Uh, For heaven's sakes, I've seen it in the newspaper business. At one point in my career at the New Sentinel on Sundays in the football season, we were licking at a quarter million circulation a day. 240, something like that. Now, again, that was during the football season when you really get a a jump. Uh, We're a little over 50,000 now. Uh, The staff layoffs at the New Sentinel have been, uh, for no other word, draconian. Uh, And I don't find fault with the New Sentinel, even though I had great survivor's guilt that I felt like I was with a lot of others running across a field and there's landmines. And boom, he gets blown up and she gets blown up, but I got to the other side. I understand. Uh, we were just talking up here earlier. Some of you may have read in sports the other day where Bob Hodge, who was used to be our full-time outdoors editor, uh, had, had taken another job some years ago but continued to write as a freelancer once a week. Well, he's gone now. Uh, Gannett has forced them to severely cut back their freelance budget. So it makes me wonder what's going to go on the paper. I don't know. But, I mean, I'm an outsider in that. But I understand the principle involved, you know, when, when, when the world changes and your particular business simply just doesn't fit in anymore. Um, again, it's amazing to me that the guy was able to achieve what he achieved and is in no small part due to his uh, grandmother and grandfather, Mamaw and Papaw, as dysfunctional a family as you could ever hope to see. I mean, Mamaw and Papaw didn't even live together, for heaven's sakes, but yet Mamaw's house was the haven. As coarse as she was and carrying the gun and proud of the fact that she would have killed this guy as a teenager or whatever, but somebody stopped her. I mean, violent, violent people, but yet that was his haven and gave him some mentoring along the way. I think that, and as as you read in there, his uh, four years with the Marine Corps really helped him and made him realize that, yes, you can do something if you've, you've just got to get the grit to do it, and you just got to keep bouncing up when, when something knocks you down. Some of the experiences he had in the Marine Corps, outside of physical stuff, it's just like he said he had never known how to balance a checkbook. Uh, when he was in his uh, law school, at Yale Law School, he's going to a dinner where this is kind of the uh, the show where the big high-powered law firms are watching these people See how they handle themselves socially. Uh, He didn't know what sparkling water was. They asked him what kind of water, and finally he thought sparkling sounded good, and they gave it to him. And he spit it out. He said, "God," he said, "that's the worst tasting stuff I've ever put in my mouth." He he had his girlfriend was his refuge in that. Uh, You remember the time when all the spoons were lined up, and he excuses himself and goes to the restroom. And says, what the hell do I do with these spoons? What, what do you do? And she told him, you know, start working inward. When I talk about the grit, once this guy realized that, yes, you can, and I think that's at the crux of it, which I'll get into in just a minute, is this society he grew up in was just slowly taking over the attitude that the world's against us and there's nothing we can do about it. And he says, yes, you can. You know, there are choices that you make that have consequences. And if you grow up and your idea of fancy eating is Hardee's, and you sit there and drink all those high-powered sugar drinks and smoke till your lungs collapse and weigh 400 pounds, good chance, yeah, you're going to have diabetes and, you know, you're going to die. But these choices can be reversed. I was stunned to read when he got out of the Marine Corps, now he he was ready, this was after high school, damn near failed out of high school early on, just didn't care, wasn't going to class and all that, and finally the seed took purchase and he started realizing he needed an education. Just filling out the form to go to Ohio State was so daunting, I mean just an application, Did not know how to do it. Went to the Marine Corps, came back. He went to Ohio State, and again, I'm sure as you read in there, one year and 11 months, he finished Ohio State. A double major, working two jobs, and he graduated summa cum laude. That is what you get when you persevere. There's a part in there that he marked his calendar one time, how long it had been since he got more than four hours sleep a night. But he was so driven. And then uh, took some time off, he was admitted to Yale Law School. I was struck by the irony of the fact that uh, somebody from his economic background had it absolutely made as far as entering a, a prestigious school like Yale at you know nowhere near the cost of another student whose family had the means to send them there. And he pointed out that some of the smaller universities cost more than a major university. And these are things you don't know unless you look and ask around. Um, There's a, a very telling part in there about the situation of the people he grew up in and the time between graduating Ohio State and entering Yale Law School to get some money He worked in a tile plant. I don't know if they were manufacturing tiles or shipping them. He said they were quite heavy. And they were having to move them from place to place. But that was a job. That's that's what you did. And he said there was another guy there who had a girlfriend who was pregnant. The owner of the company uh, not only employed this guy, also employed his pregnant girlfriend in the office just to give him some money. And he said it was no time before this guy wasn't showing up on the job or would come in and take a 45-minute bathroom break and all this kind of stuff. Same with his girlfriend. She'd call in every couple of days or just wouldn't show up. And finally, uh, the owner fired the guy. And he just was stunned. He said, why are you firing me? I've got a pregnant girlfriend, you know. And was completely lost on the guy. that no. You're the problem here. It's not the owner. I was also, I guess I knew this in my mind, but never had it so dramatically pointed out, the value of networking that he realized when he was getting out of law school. I think he and most of his fellow law school graduates had secured good, high-paying positions before they ever graduated law school, part of this networking. And he said that was just stunning to him and made him realize even more the disadvantage. He said nobody from my area, although I I got to thinking there was a small networking, and if your uncle worked at the plant, he could get you on or something. That's that type of stuff. But he said he had no idea that you could get a $160,000 a year job just by knowing somebody who was an alum and that kind of stuff, and they recommend you over here, and assuming you don't spit your sparkling water out the second time, uh, you could get hired. So as I said, he uh, tries to stress this feeling that that whole society has gotten of being victimized. He talked about, I've written about this before, this alleged war on Christmas where people have gotten this feeling, some Christians have gotten this feeling that there's a war on Christmas. No, there ain't. (laughs) It's just that a lot of people don't celebrate Christmas the way you celebrate it. You know, it's more of a secular holiday. But if you get this idea that you're a victim, somebody is trying to oppress you, you can get of the mindset that there ain't nothing I can do but gripe and complain. Uh, as he said, you can't solve the whole problem. It's never going to go away. But you can make little impacts along and do what you can. I was really touched toward the end of the book. He's talking about this teenager, Brian, who he said it looked just like me uh, at 15. He, he was in like five or six different households just in a matter of years where there was an alleged father figure. I mean, his mother was a drug addict, and you know she had married this guy for two months and married that guy, and he was just being ping-ponged around these. That's why his grandmother's uh, house was such a haven. Uh, I was also struck in there when he was talking about the term welfare queen, and he said politicians have made the term welfare queen synonymous with with a black woman in Harlem who just produces babies. And he says, I know a bunch of welfare queens who live down there in Breathitt County, Kentucky, and have never struck a lick at a snake and have husbands. There was one this thing in there that he sees the little eyes peeking out from the, from the oh, that just bring you to tears. The dad... Had fathered like six kids from four different women, and was proud of the fact that he never worked a day in his life, and yet was a staunch proponent of man. You gotta, you gotta get out there. You gotta make it on your own, and that kind. And that whole juxtaposition of that, he said. That's why he said government programs will never, ever solve this. This is no bleeding heart liberal. I mean, you read this in there. He even says it, right? He said he is conservative and proud of it. In many uh, respects, they they reject help. And talking about, you know, when uh, Lyndon Johnson's war on poverty, and I, I heard this uh, sentiment expressed in in several small communities. We don't need people from Washington down here showing us what to do. Well, if they can get you a better job, wouldn't be a bad idea, you know. But that attitude that. They're from up there, and we don't need them. Uh, I I did think there was one interesting, and just a kind of a thought in my mind. He kept talking in there about family and how you would rise to protect your family, even if you hated this family member's guts. If somebody said something bad about him, you went to fight him. Uh, because you're protecting your family and in a way I thought well that's essentially he has turned on his family in this book in that sense but I'm so glad he did I mean he pointed out the problems that were there and I think painted the picture like like you have never seen Uh, one other thing and I'll I'll hush and we can go to discussion I want to read just a little bit This thing came out in June of last year. I don't know how many years it had been in preparation. But there's no way at that time they could have figured out how the election was going to go. And he is talking, let me just read something about it. And he is talking about how the evolution occurred. He was talking about a lot of his friends detested President Barack Obama. And he said he understands why. He said it had nothing to do with skin color. It had all to do with the fact that this is a very successful man who has a wonderful family and seems to get along. And he said, President Obama came on the scene right as so many people in my community Began to believe the modern American was not for them. Uh, we know we're not doing well. We see it every day in the obituaries for teenage kids that conspicuously omit the cause of death, reading between the lines, overdose. In the deadbeats we watch our daughters waste their time with, Barack Obama strikes at the heart of our deepest insecurities. He's a good father, while many of us aren't. He wears suits to his job while we wear overalls, if we're lucky to have a job at all. His wife tells us that we shouldn't be feeding our kids certain foods, and we hate her for it, not because we think she's wrong, but because we know she's right. And and these are lessons that he had to learn. There's a couple of other right in here when he's talking about how so easy when you're feeling victimized and you're feeling like the world is against you, it, it, particularly in this time when with social media stories and rumors can just fly and just balloon within hours is ironclad fact. Uh, he had several examples here, and he's talked about it really wasn't surprising to him uh, the symptoms are all around us. Significant percentages of white conservative voters, about one-third, believe that Barack Obama is a Muslim. In one poll, 32% of conservatives said they believed Obama was foreign-born, and another 19% they were said they were unsure, which means that a majority of white conservatives aren't certain that Obama is even American. I was stunned that uh, that Donald Trump got off the hook at the 11th hour by just announcing a new hotel and then saying, oh, by the way, yeah, he, he's, he's, he's born in America. That's no problem. <laughs> How the hell do you think this guy got to power? I mean, got, got going. He kept preaching that, you know, feeding that very thing. Once that seed gets planted, and he, he lists some examples in here. It's impossible to know how many people believe one or many of these stories. But if a third of our community questions the president's origin, despite all evidence to the contrary, it's a good bet that the other conspiracies have broader currency than we'd like. This isn't some libertarian mistrust of government policy, which is healthy in any democracy. This is a deep skepticism of the very institutions of our society and it's becoming more and more mainstream. We, we, can't, we, we can't trust the evening news. We can't trust our politicians. Our universities, the gateway to a better life, are rigged against us. This is the, this is the sentiment. You know, uh, We can't get jobs. We can't believe those things and participate meaningfully in society. Social psychologists have shown that the group belief is a power motivator in performance. When groups perceive that it's in their interest to work hard and achieve things, members of that group outperform uh, other similarly situated individuals. It's obvious why. If you believe that hard work pays off, then you work hard. If you think it's hard to get ahead when you even try, then why try it all? What separates the successful from the unsuccessful are the expectations they had for their own lives. Yet the message of the right is increasingly, it's not your fault you're a loser, it's the government's fault. And that made November the 8th sure pop into my consciousness there. How many of y'all watched the, uh, the election night, watched as they came in? It was incredible. And I say this as, as a citizen, as a journalist, when those things started, all the people on their panels were just virtually giddy. It, you know, it's just going to be a matter of time before Hillary Clinton is swept into this. Of course, Trump got the popular vote, we realize, with all those millions of undocumented voters <laughs> out there. But you could see, and they actually showed... Uh, several scenes at the Republican Victory Party. It was empty. There was nobody there, a few people there. And as the giddiness subsided during the night, more and more people showed up at the Trump headquarters. And I'm telling you, you could see it. I mean, I'm no dummy. You could read it on the faces of these commentators who are trying to be as as nonpartisan as they can their, their, their facial expressions are saying, we're screwed. <laughs> this guy's going to win the election, you know. And so uh, I think America got a, a great shock. At least a large portion of America got a tremendous shock, <laughs> the waves of which continue to reverberate. <laughs> uh, I, I hope the best for our country the next four years. I mean, what fool would not want the best? We saw that in the last eight years with the, some of the obstacles that were thrown in the administration's way. But you want them to succeed. We want America to be great or greater. I don't think we've ever fallen back, but to be greater. You want that to happen. But yet you realize you're looking, in, in my mind, you're looking at a dumpster fire. And you're just wondering when it's gonna, when's the dumpster going to blow up. So enough of uh, of my... I guess you can see where, (laughs) thank you, Uh, (laughs) I guess you can rather easily tell where my vote was cast on November (laughs) the 8th. In any event, that's just some thoughts I had. Maybe they parallel yours, maybe you don't. Happy to entertain questions, thoughts. Please come over to the microphone. Come on. I can't remember precisely whether while he was in the Marine Corps or when he was in college, but he started reading heavily for the first time because, like you said, he kind of drifted mm-hmm. through high school. And what stunned him, according to his book, mm-hmm. was that he was reading certain black authors who were talking about the same kind of familial yeah. uh, dysfunction yeah. that he saw in white hillbillies. Mm-hmm. And then he realized, you know, it's it's not just white hillbillies; it's it's people in in city ghetto situations, whether they're Hispanic or black or Indians on the reservation or whatever, there are pockets all over the place. Yeah.
2: I have a friend who does a lot of missionary work in Harlan, Kentucky area. She says that several members of that community may, like this young man, be smart enough, they go off, they get education. They get so much grief from their family. Oh, you've left us! That's in Oh, I can't there, yeah. believe you've left. So even the ones who have even gone away, they, they end up coming back because they feel their family feels like they've betrayed yeah. them. He, he to, how, that's the- so tribal and clannish. And I kind of sort of get mad at the white community because, oh well, a black man took my job, a brown man took my job, yeah. or something. We don't have access to the jobs what the heck do they think has been going on in ghetto areas? Oh, we don't have money to get out of the community. Hello? It's the same thing.
1: It is exactly the same thing. There's a a part in there, and I don't have the exact percentages here, but where he says, according to some research, the group of people in America uh, who are depressed and think that there's no future are white working people. The Latino optimism is high. Uh, And that shows, again, perspective. And again, it goes back to choices. And if you've never been mentored with choices, if you make that choice, there's consequences down the line. And even kids have a hard time. Adults have a hard time understanding that, much less kids. Anyhow, Don?
2: Yeah, hi. My name's Don, and I'm a hillbilly. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I'll tell you, he's a hillbilly that represents this area very, very well. This yeah. is Don Barker.
2: If you, if, you, uh, if you haven't read this book, I would really encourage you to do so. What I found fascinating about it myself was the things that were parallel and the things that weren't. I was born in West Virginia. My dad drove a truck for Hormel when I was a kid. My grandfather, his dad, was killed in a steel mill uh, in Chattanooga. We moved in with my grandmother. There's so many pieces of jd vance's life that parallel mine and yet i actually was raised by warden june cleaver my parents yeah. are were just absolutely amazing and i never understood a whole lot of the things they did until i read this mm-hmm. book and the one example i would give they were really intent on pulling me out of the very culture that he defines uh, in this book when i was 16 years old i was fascinated with music and i asked for a banjo they bought me a guitar. <laughs> and the reason they did was they saw the banjo as a hillbilly instrument, and they wanted to pull me out and put me into something else. So the book has an awful lot of instruction in it, not only about yourself if you were raised in this part of the country, but about the other people you know with whom you have yeah. associated during yeah. your life. It's really it, fascinating.
1: We often hear the uh, the common statement there, but by the grace of God go I. Our assistant priest one time preached one hell of a sermon on that and said, why would God give this one grace but not that one? You know, hey, we are all got it. It's just whether you recognize it or not.
0: You've been touching upon this a lot, and I just want your thoughts. You know, the concept of pulling oneself up by one's own bootstraps is is false because, you know, that neglects to it. And to acknowledge the people in that person's life who influenced them and the connections mm-hmm. and the networking that you talked about, and so I just wanted your thoughts on sort of the American dream uh, compared to, like you said, all of those little factors that go into boosting someone, elevating someone.
1: I can give you a personal example through my extended family. I mean, they grew up in Knoxville. His formal education is a high school diploma. He spent a few years in the Navy began as an insurance salesman getting into some different stuff, learned what networking was all about, again, just by out there doing it. He has learned how to do it. And he came from the same stock that everybody in that family came from, and some of them, frankly, didn't make it. Fell off by the wayside, either from substance abuse or whatever. He had a gun collection, we go by and he said, look at that one right there. It's an old Stevens double-barrel shotgun. You could buy one at a gun show or at a, at a sporting goods store where it used for, I don't know, 200 bucks. You could buy it brand new for probably 400. He said, that was my daddy's shotgun. And he said, that gun has been in and out of every pawn shop in Knoxville, Tennessee. <laughs> he said, we'd need something, Daddy'd pawn his shotgun. We'd buy it, he'd go back and get his gun back. And uh, I was amazed, too. Let me, he's talking about the, pay, the day lenders, the, uh, which we think of as, as, as just bloodsuckers, and I, I do. But he's talking about, you don't understand there's a group of people, and he even used one to make his rent one time. He said there's a group of people that that is the only banking system they have. So, anyhow.
0: Sam, I just wanted to say thank you so much for your talk. And uh, thank you, everyone, for coming. And thanks to UT College of Arts and Science for providing today's lunch and being our
2: wonderful partners. Thank you. Have a good day.
1: Great. Yeah, we're about time to get going.
0: Thank you for listening to Book Sandwiched In, a lunchtime book discussion series sponsored by Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. To find other podcasts, please visit our website at knoxlib.org.